Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24 is our main text today, although we're going to jump around this week as we did last. Our current series is Making Sense of Money, the Gospel and Finances. We began last week. We learned, among other things, hopefully, that the Bible has a lot to say about money, especially how we should gain it, how we should grow it, and how we should give it. Apparently, it hit a button with a number of you because I got more calls and, and reach outs this week than I have in a long time. So, let's do it again. We learned that the Bible isn't against money or financial security or advancement or investments, but we did learn that the Bible is adamantly against the love of money. Big difference, right? Nothing wrong with money, but the love of money puts us in jeopardy with God's will. So now that we have uh, this understanding that we should gain it and grow it and give it, let's break down some of the practical ways in which this picture shows itself in the life of Christians like you and me. We're going to get to it. Let me begin by saying this. We can't do what God has called us to do while we're weighed down by the debt of worldly pursuits. It's almost metaphorical, isn't it? We can't lift the weak if we're pulled down by debt. We can't support the missionaries who are spreading the gospel while we're supporting our unwise spending habits. We can't invest monetarily in our church home that invests in us spiritually if we're overextended in every other avenue of our life. We can't give generously if we're unwilling to spend with wisdom and hard work to advance our own financial standings. And listen, I know that to one degree or another, we've all been there. Amen? And some of us might even be there right now. Some of you might be sitting in this series going, I'm in that place you said we shouldn't be. But that's okay. The gospel, the gospel, the good news of what God has done for sinners like us in the death, burial, and resurrection, that's the gospel. The gospel is about freedom in Christ. Spiritual freedom, yes. Psychological freedom, yes. And even financial freedom. Because in the gospel and in Jesus Christ, we find all of our needs met by God's grace and God's mercy. If you don't believe that, you're not where you need to be. I mean, you're you're in the right address, but I mean your life personally. If you are unsatisfied by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, there's no amount of money that will make you happy. As Christians, we should be enamored with the beauty of God's grace, with the richness of his mercy. The freedom that is granted to us in Christ is freedom, listen, to work hard, to put forth effort, and to be responsible with all that God has permitted for us in Christ. Not to do less, but to do more. In other words, the freedom permitted to us in Christ affords us the opportunities to misuse freedom if we are not in alignment with his will. And that's love, isn't it? Christ is no tyrant. 
but a loving, guiding, wise, compassionate Savior who deserves our faith, our trust, and our obedience, and he wants us to choose a holy and righteous lifestyle that honors him even in regards to our finances. So in view of the fact that we should gain and grow and give money, in view of the fact that the gospel should impact us, not only spiritually and mentally, but even financially, let me encourage you with this. Say amen if you're listening. Let's peek at the past, but let's focus on the future. Let's peek at the past, but let's focus on the future. Soren Kierkegaard said it best. He said, life is understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Some of us are making the same mistakes today that we made yesterday, expecting tomorrow to be different. That's not the way it works. If you want there to be change, then there must be change. We can peek at the past, but we really got to focus on the future. You see, the gospel isn't about reminding us about our sins, right? It's about forgiving us of our sins and relieving us of sin's burden. The gospel isn't about telling us where we've been as much as it is about telling us where we're going. And it isn't about what we have as much as it is about who has us. And in the security of that gospel, in the security of that relationship with Jesus, we learn about financial responsibility. So with that in mind, with that introduction done, let's talk about the gospel and finances. My first point for you this morning is this, the gospel, church, and finances. The gospel, church, and finances. I'm going to invite you to look again at verse 19 of Matthew 6 and read with your eyes. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body uh, will be full of darkness. And if the light, if then the light in you is darkness, excuse me, how great is the darkness? No one should serve two masters or can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What an interesting choice of phrase by Jesus. No man can serve two masters. We cannot serve God and money. The way we see money, the way we favor financial priorities, the way that we find comfort in materialism, the way that we often tend to equate money with God's blessings... All of these things are negatively affecting the church, especially in the Western world. The Church of Christ, which started with no material and massive spiritual strength, now has all the material that the world has, but is spiritually anemic. We cannot do as a body of Christ what the apostles used to do. 
but we have everything that they didn't. They have nothing that we do. In his book called Kingdom Matrix, Jeff Christofferson juxtaposes Peter and Stephen, guys who loved Jesus and followed Jesus and eventually died for Jesus, with the groups that followed Jesus just to see stuff, just to see what the commotion was about. He writes this, What do we get when we cross the values of materialism with the subculture of Christendom? We don't get Peter. We get the picnic crowd. You know, the feeding of the 5,000. They came and they're like, hey, we want some more of those fish and crackers. We get things that we often call church that are set up and exclusively designed for the benefits of its club members. We also don't find disciples like Stephen at these picnics. They have better places to be. The picnic needs a different kind of disciple, a less zealous one, one who will be satisfied with quality sermons and quality music and quality parking, or perhaps one that can be rented with club member advantages such as fitness centers, cappuccino bars, and mission trips to ski resorts. The picnic should always be exciting. This is a little convicting, isn't it? You see, what the American church, I should just say Western church because Europe is not any different. The Western church has materialized the gospel, which is a spiritual thing. Right? John 4 says that God is spirit and he must be worshipped how? In spirit and in truth. He doesn't say with this kind of building, with that kind of floor, or that kind of paint. There's nothing wrong with having a beautiful building. But the building, the campus, the structure, the planning, these things should never come to interfere with the priority that is the gospel. You see, our financial philosophy is a matter of discipleship. If we're dedicated to Christ, then we're dedicated to his church. And if we're dedicated to his church, then we're dedicated in more ways than one. Let me put it to you this way. Say amen if you're listening. If we're dedicated to Christ, then we're financially dedicated to his church too. Think about it. The very idea of a tithe, that is giving 10% of what we make to God, while it's just a principle and not a law, we do not find the tithe in the New Testament. It's looked at with scorn today. Why? I find that interesting because we don't hesitate to give people 10% of our attitude. Right? Right? We don't hesitate to give people 10% of our opinion. We don't hesitate to give people 10% of our complaints, Karen. We don't hesitate to give people 10% of what we think they're doing wrong. But when it comes to the conversation of giving 10% by design or principle of what we make financially to the church that feeds us spiritually, all of a sudden, God help us, no, you're being a legalist. 
We have an idolatry problem, church. We make up our own rules. We decide what 10% of what we're going to give. When? How often? But that's exactly what the scripture says, namely that we should give to God from what we earn. 10% is just a model. Let me share with you a couple scriptures. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You see, there are some blessings of God that are conditional. If you pray to God, you repent of your sin, and you place your faith in Jesus as Savior, you're saved. That's done. But as we live our lives as Christians, there are some things that God has basically just said, I'm not doing that for you until you do this. It's, it's, it's a matter of obedience. We'll just call them conditional blessings, conditional promises. Here in Proverbs chapter 3, it says, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be successful, if you want to have advancement, you got to be faithful to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 8 say, each one, that's each person in the church, each person must give as they have made up in their mind. You see that? Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let me translate that for you. You can't outgive God. We say, oh, I'm excited to give. I want to give to my church. I've never really been a giver. I'm learning about it now. I want to start giving, and I'm excited to give more. Paul says, give. Give. Don't be financially responsible. Be financially responsible. That, we talked about that last week. Go back and listen to the podcast. But after you're gaining and growing and giving, when you get to the giving part, Paul says, give with excitement and cheerfulness. Because you can't outgive God. God will make sure that you are sufficient in all things because he honors us and our giving and what he has in store for us in the gospel. So this leads me to another area where the gospel should impact us and with the handling of our money. The gospel, church, and finances was first. And the second is going to be the gospel, parenting and finances. Oh, now it's going to get ugly. I taught you last week that work is a gift that teaches the relationship between responsibility and reward. Work is a gift from God that teaches us the relationship between responsibility and reward. Today, however, there seems to be so many amenities, so many advancements, our kids have to work less and less and less. I mean, 
All of our kids have iPhones. When I was 18, I had a beeper. <laughs> Dimey was beeping me, 143-911. You know what that means. It was a beeper. And you know you had to, and if you wanted to be like low-key, you had to put the beeper inside your belt, like on inside your pants, so it was just the clip showing. Oh man, whoa, we're nerds. Think about that. <laughs> My daughters have iPhones that are more capable than my first computer was. And that it fits in their back pocket. And my first computer weighed like 500 pounds. We have so many advancements. We have so many amenities that are available at such a lower cost today that it's sabotaging the process that God intended for us to learn so that we could appreciate the value of things. I'm not saying it's wrong if your kids have phones. My kids have phones. My kids have iPads. We work hard. They need things for school. They get them. That's the way we run our life. I'm not telling you how to run your life. I'm not asking you how I should run mine. I'm saying there's nothing wrong with having those things. But the way things used to happen 30 years ago versus how, 30? It might even be more than that. Wait, let me do math for a minute. <laughs> the way it used to happen back then versus how it happens now, man, it's different. It's so different. And what is happening today is that we're raising up kids today that are approaching their teenage years, saying, if you're listening, they've never made their bed. They've never changed a light bulb. They've never washed a car. They've never cut a yard. They don't wash the dog. And when they come in the house and they do their chancletas like this, wherever they fall, that's where they stay. Until the chancleta genie comes through the house and miraculously picks everything up and straightens the house. They come out the next day, the next day from the room and they go, wow, everything's picked up because the genie came through the house and fixed it. Because we've allowed the world to tell us what the relationship should be between responsibility and reward. In addition to that, our kids are getting this nonsense poured down from social media to them that basically says, all you need are some advertisements for your YouTube channel and you'll never have to leave your room. Look at this YouTuber, dad. They make a million dollars a week. I'm like, that guy's a loser. What's that blonde guy's name? I don't even know. It does, it's not important. Keep me on track. Lord Jesus, let me not chase that rabbit. Anyway, you see what I mean? It used to be when I was growing up, you had to cut grass. And it took days sometimes, because you're, because you're, you're, you know, there was a, your, your father and mother didn't send you the shops. Like, buy the, buy the still. Get the biggest chopper they got. No, you had to push that junk. There's none of this Gatorade and nothing like that. Oh, you drink out of a dirty puddle. <laughs> oh man, I'm getting old, right? <laughs> Help me out here, bro. Keep me on track. But the way things are today, 
the way society has designed itself. And of course, we live in one of the most beautiful, most advanced cities in our country. Miami's a great place. But our kids are getting, at 12, what we were working hard for at 20. That doesn't necessarily mean it's evil, but it falls on us as parents and as people who have been given oversight and mentorship of younger people to help them understand the relationship between responsibilities and reward. Let's not sell ourselves short, you and I, by, by some nonsense or you know, saying some nonsense to our kids like, listen, going to school is your job. No. No, because when they graduate high school, UF is not going to pay them to go to school. You know what I mean? Going to school is not a job. Going to school is a responsibility. I, I expect you to go to school. Oh, by the way, I expect you to get good grades. Now, I will set you up for success. I will have the meal ready for you when you get home. I'll, whatever, whatever I need to do to help you succeed with your schoolwork, because I'm not doing your schoolwork. I will do as your dad, and of course, as Diamond would say, as the mother, we will set up you for success, but we're not gonna do your work, and we still have expectations of you. Going to school is not a job. Going to school is an expectation. So, since nobody gets paid to go to school, don't tell your kids that going to school is their job. In my opinion, when we say things like this, we're sabotaging an important process, and that is the process by which our kids learn the relationship between responsibility and rewards. Now, if you have a student who performs high academically, if you have a student who is carrying a heavier load, maybe a student athlete who also has practices and games, listen, you have to make, an, you have to make a wise adjustment. Your family might not run like my family, and my family might not run like your family. No two cases are exactly the same, but here's my point, parents. Amen if you're listening. Don't enable your children. Don't enable your children. Moms, don't make your son a perpetual son. Grow that boy to be a man. Dads, love your daughters enough to tell them individualism in a woman is attractive. Don't make them to be some weight. They should have their own interests, their own talents, their own success. Financial debt is something that's often inherited. We can pass this down to our kids. We've got to be careful that we're not enabling them to be that way because we haven't learned it ourselves. There are too many parents who are still the breadbasket for their 40-year-old children. Everybody's kids have hard times. I'm not talking about hard times. I'm talking about regularity. If you're a parent and you have kids that are 40 years old, they should not be on your bank account. They should not have your credit card. They should be living their own life. Now, it's great to have tight family. It's great to have a supportive structure. 
But at the end of the day, adults are supposed to adult. You understand? We should be growing our kids so that they understand by our example and by our teaching that if they want a reward, they've got to fulfill responsibility. But again, financial debt is sometimes a mentality that's inherited. We pass it down to them sometimes, sometimes by a faulty thinking, sometimes by good intentions. But both of these things are tied to parents. It's our job. It's our responsibility. Listen, church, live by the principles in the Bible, namely gain money, grow money, and give money, and pass down those principles to your kids, and the cycle will repeat itself. Don't teach them that money is free because it's not. Don't teach them that whatever happens, you're going to fix it because you can't. Don't teach them that, whatever, that after decades of bad decisions and the inability to learn a lesson, that you're always going to be a safety net for them because a codependent problem is not a good problem. And it creates relationships that are inevitably doomed. The financial realm is a crystal clear microcosm that reveals the shortcomings we pass down to our children. What do our kids think of money? How do our kids think of money? When our kids have money, do they ever think about giving to their church? There's three ways I think that we can accomplish this goal, namely of being responsible parents that teach financial responsibility to our kids. They're going to come up on the screen. Number one, give them chores. This might sound like a revolutionary idea. Chores, by the way, is not putting your flip-flops in the closet. That's not a chore. (laughs) Those are not my sandals. Put your sandals in your closet, right? You can see how this goes in my house. They're part of the family, are they not? They should contribute. Start small and stand by the rules. When your son turns 12, don't, don't, don't say, here's a paintbrush. I need the outside of the house painted. You know what I mean? Be realistic. But the kids in your home should have responsibilities. There is no excuse for a house that's in disorder that has kids. No one in this building is busier than I am. Your house should be in order. Your house is a reflection of your life. If it's too much for you, you've got a lot going on, here's a question for you. What are you teaching your kids? What are you passing down to your children? There's no reason why you can't say to your kids, hey, listen, I'm on the way home. When I get home, have the dishwasher emptied because we've got to start dinner. This is probably what's going to happen. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Seriously? The up speak starts. I hate emptying the dishwasher. Who cares? Get thick skin, man. Don't be a child. 
If your kids like you all the time, you are not parenting. You understand? Some of you want to be your, friends, your kids' friends. It's, it's killing your authority as a parent. Your kids need to love you. You need to love them. You need to have an intimate relationship with your kids. But at the end of the day, you're the boss. It's your mortgage. The clothes on their back came from your bank account. The dinners, the books, you name it. That's from you. Don't ask them permission to parent. Now, if you have a good relationship, you can say, listen, I need you to do me a solid. There's a lot going on. It would help me a lot if you had this room clean when we got home. Or whatever. Do they or do they not live in the house? You know what I mean? We've got kids today who think they were born into like a servant lifestyle. They're Meghan Markles. They become royalty for five minutes and they're like, I'm going to keep the money, but I'm leaving the palace. It doesn't work like that. Real life anyway. Give your kids chores. Secondly, let them spend their own money. Like, I don't understand this. Your kids get holiday money, their birthday. Oh, I got 75 bucks for my birthday. Awesome. What do you want? I want shoes. I'll pay for the shoes. I don't understand this. You've got more money in your wallet than I do. Why am I buying your shoes? If you want new vans or new Converse or whatever it is that you want, new Air Maxes because the white is dirty, go spend your own money, man. What is wrong with that? I don't understand. Everybody's looking at my kids. I don't understand what the issue is. <laughs> I, I know they're gorgeous, but come on. So, do you guys need to turn on your phone and flip the camera and look at yourself? That's what you need to do. Stop looking at the Myras and start looking at your own situation. <laughs> when you give your kids financial gifts, teach them financial responsibility by letting them spend their own money and telling them, hey, don't forget to give to God. Give them chores. Let them spend their own money. Finally, encourage them to give some to God. They don't have to give a ton of their money to God. They're not working on a regular basis. You can talk to them about that. But I think it's important that our kids understand that money is a means to an end. Money is not the end. You and I know as fast as it comes in, it goes out. But when we lead other than the way I'm teaching you, then our kids have $500 in their wallet that they've accumulated over years and never spent, which leads them to believe that they're going to live their entire life collecting money, but never spending it. That's not realistic. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus says, but that's what we're telling them when we do that. You just keep saving. You just keep saving. We're not teaching them responsibility. Bless your kids. Buy them all they want. I don't care. That's your prerogative. But don't do it in spite of the importance of responsibility. Pass down to your children the important rules of life. Listen, if you view your current situation to find that you have done it wrong, the world's way rather than God's way, repent and change course. Amen? We all have had to do this. I've had to apologize to my kids. I can't, I can't, why bother counting? I lost my temper, I'm sorry. 
I shouldn't have said what I said. I apologize. My kids know that I'm not perfect. And what's more, they know I don't think I'm perfect. But it's important for them to see that repentance in me because you know what? My kids, they're not perfect either. You know how they learn repentance? By seeing it done. It's more than a word study, church. It's more than a theological doctrine. It's something that you've got to demonstrate. It's something that you've got to lead by example with. Let's peek at the past. Let's focus on the future. Listen, teach your children that work is a gift from God that, ha- that he has given to show us the relationship between responsibility and reward. And let me encourage you to make independent, responsible children who understand that nothing in life is free, that work is respectable, even admirable. There's nothing sexy about unemployment. Right? Right, dog? Seriously. I have never heard a young woman, I'm a man, so I'm going to speak from this perspective. I've never heard a young woman say, there's this unemployed guy I bumped into. He lives in his mom's extra room. He is so cute and independent. It's amazing. That's not sexy. You know what's sexy? Money in your account. You know what's sexy? Having your own place. You know what's sexy? Advancement. Unemployment is not attractive. I mean, there's a season and a purpose behind living in your parents' house, but there comes a time when you need to say, I love you, Mom and Dad, but I need to go. This is what Genesis says. For this reason, for what reason? So he can walk around the house naked. A man will leave his father and mother's house and be one with his wife. It's really awkward when you live at home with your spouse and you walk around the house naked. That's weird. That should not happen at all. And if that happens in your house, you might need to reconsider your membership here. That's weird. (laughs) We're not that kind of church. (laughs) As you grow and mature, listen, As you grow and mature in your mind, you should be, I want my own. But you don't just get your own. you got to work for it. Diamond and I have been blessed with two incredible daughters that I would not trade for 100 sons. We, the the four of us, man, we're the fantastic four, man. I just, I love my, I'm so blessed. Sometimes I think of what David said, who am I that you've brought me this far? I'm so grateful what God has done in my life with the kids that he has given me. But I don't want them at my house forever. And I got news for you. They don't want to be at my house forever. When Daimi and I got our first apartment, we got it the month before we got married because we had planned it this way. We got married in college, our senior year of college. We had this apartment The month before we got married. No, we did not live together before we got married. At this point, we were already Christians. We were living disciplined. But the second we left the church, we wanted someplace to go. I'll let your mind go where it wants to. But this apartment was so small, if you turn the corner too fast, you get a concussion. Okay? It was like 400 square feet, right? It was little. It was a little spot. But it was our spot. 
It was our spot. That's important. We didn't need a 4-3. We didn't need a townhouse. If things work out that way, praise the Lord. But the goal is not the material. The goal is how can I live God's will in my life? And if that means it's a 450-square-foot apartment, for the love of God, go get the apartment. There's no shame in having your own apartment. I don't care what the square footage is. You know what I mean? And location doesn't matter either. We've got friends that are down there on Collins. It's awful. It's awful. 3000 a month, and it looks like an industrial mess, and it's still this big. Be smart about your money. Aim at advancement. Teach your kids this responsibility so that as they are growing into adulthood, they can achieve these things. I'm proud to say that we have a lot of people here in our church that are doing that. We've got a lot of younger people that are aiming at that, and that makes us proud as a church. But the reason we teach the way that we do is for this reason. Ultimately, our parenting will affect the future of our church. If we do not parent our children in a way that is in alignment with the gospel, this church will close. Because you older saints who grew up having it grilled into you, drilled into you, is that what it drilled into you? Either one. You older saints who have had it drilled into you from a young age that you give to the church that feeds you spiritually, you're going to pass and go to glory, and your kids are going to be left in this church. Will they have the knowledge and the teaching to help this church flourish, or will they simply be consumers and not creators? <laughs> 